Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Leviticus, the 26th chapter. Recently, a young lady sat in my office, and she began to weep, and a rather sordid story came out of a lack of peace and a lack of joy, many problems, one calamity after another, and the home situation. For her, it was what the writer of Leviticus calls iron heaven, brass earth. Your heaven shall be as iron, your earth shall be as brass. A hard time. I believe that we gained some insights into her and many similar situations from the passage in Leviticus 26. Notice the opening verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 26. You shall make no idols nor grave an image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall... Keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And we remember that in this uh, book of Leviticus and in Exodus prior to it, you had hundreds of precepts or commandments given that were to be followed. But in a sense, we are winding these up now, and uh, God is somewhat like the master who has given his servant many instructions, and then just prior to leaving, he calls him in and he says, Now, Whatever you do, remember these things. And he goes back over the key ones that perhaps the servant is most likely to forget. God says, whatever you do, remember, no idols, no rival on the throne of your heart. I must have first place in your life. The New Testament way of putting it, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters. God must reign there alone. He must have first. He is a jealous God. He will brook no rival, whether that rival be silver or someone or something. No idols. And remember my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. The Sabbath and the sanctuary. The Sabbath being kept holy and used as a day of rest unto the Lord when his people gather together and hear his word and fellowship with one another and exhort one another and offer up prayer. Where does the state of having no idols come from? It comes from maintaining these means of fellowship with God, the ordinances of meeting together, The preached word, prayer offered together, remembering his Sabbaths and his sanctuary. Where does the slide begin in someone's life when they begin to let idols creep in? Doesn't it begin with that very point, a failure to keep the Sabbath, a failure to reverence the sanctuary? He reiterates these commandments. That's the first point. Then he gives the results of... Obedience, if you obey, 
In verse 3, if ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments to do them. Here's the condition, walking in them, keeping them, doing them. A continual way of life of seeking from the heart to obey his commandments. We will fall short, we will sin, but nonetheless, the purpose of heart, follow with all of our heart, and when we are conscious of sin, Turn from it and seek to do his will again in a new, fresh way. If ye keep my commandments, then, here's the consequence, he says. And you find great and precious promises spelled out. These promises were to the nation of Israel. They're in terms of temporal promises, primarily, in terms of material promises. But... They apply to every nation, in a sense. They apply to every individual who is in a relationship with God. In the New Testament, the New Testament way of stating something similar would be given in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And when you look at it in context, these things have to do with our material needs being met and every other need. In the New Testament, the promises take on a much more spiritual nature. God promises spiritual blessings when we obey. But he promises material blessings also. The spiritual are primary. Oftentimes, God cannot bless us materially because it would be to our spiritual detriment. And when he has to make a choice, spiritual comes first. Thank God. Nonetheless, when you read these promises of obeying, they apply to you and to me today. Notice what he promises. Verse 4, Then will I give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The promise of plenty, material plenty here, spiritual plenty. Then the promise of peace in verse 5, the last phrase, You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely, and I will give peace in the land. And ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. You have peace. Real peace. Is your home peaceful? Is your heart peaceful? Is our land peaceful? He speaks of power in verse 7. Ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase an hundred. A hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Power. Power to overcome your enemies. Do you have power in your life, spiritual power, power to conquer your enemies? Does our nation have power? You'll have the presence of God. In verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. Power brought on by the presence of God in our lives. The New Testament way of putting this, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. 
And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and we will make our abode with him and manifest ourselves unto him. The presence of God in a real, daily, wonderful way of communion in our lives, manifesting himself in our lives if we obey. And the result of all of this, perfect freedom. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you to go upright. He says, look, I am the Lord your God who set you free. You were a bondman. These rules, these rules are not slavery. These commandments are perfect freedom. There's a new book out on the Ten Commandments in our bookstore entitled The Ten Great Freedoms. When we do his commandments, says the psalmist, we walk at perfect liberty. Real freedom is not when I'm free to do what I want to do, but when I want to do and I can do what I ought to do, then I'm free. That's the consequence. Peace, plenty, power, the very person of God, the presence of God in our lives in a powerful way and perfect freedom. What about the results of disobedience? In verse 14, if ye will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if ye shall despise my statutes, and if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. You notice how he phrases this disobedience? He calls it a not hearkening, won't hear. He calls it a not doing all of his commandments, picking and choosing some of them that we will keep maybe. He calls it a despising of his statutes, an abhorring of his judgments, a rebellion against him, a real unyielded will, a hardened heart. If we have that attitude, which leads to a breaking on our part of his covenant, the consequences... Punishment. I will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you as taskmasters. Terror, consumption, the burning egg that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you. And ye shall flee when none pursueth you. Punishment. Not all calamity that happens in our lives is in the nature of this kind of punishment. You remember that was the era of Job's comforters. Job had tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. They come to him and they are grieved. And they sit with him seven days before they even speak. And then they say, Job... What did you do? What did you do that all this happened to you? Job says, I didn't do anything. 
That's now, Job, you can tell us we're your friends. What did you do? And the truth of the matter is, these things had not happened to Job for any particular sins. Not that he wasn't a sinner like the rest of us. But the fact of the matter is, he was one of the most uh, moral men of his day and most obedient men of his day. And yet these things had happened. Not all calamity that takes place is of the nature of punishment for sin. But for Christians, all suffering is designed to draw us closer to God, to humble us, to make us more dependent on Him, more yielded to Him. Some of it's in terms of preventive maintenance. You remember Paul said that a thorn in the flesh was given him, given him by God as preventive maintenance, lest he should be exalted above measure because of how much he'd been blessed. Some of it's in terms of other things. But sometimes, oftentimes, the calamities that happen in our lives are in terms of specific punishment. Jesus healed a man. He said, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. In uh, our nation, where is the man who doesn't believe that the drug problem and the riots and the sex revolution are a result of the sin of our nation. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe it's true in individuals' lives as well. The people who were being punished in this way were God's people. They were covenant people. He says, you break my covenant when you disobey. As a matter of fact, it's because they were his people that they were being punished. Over in the book of Amos, he says, You only have I known of all the people on the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. The way it's put over in the book of Hebrews, it says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you don't endure chastening when you sin, that means, says the writer of Hebrews, you're not his son. When your next-door neighbor's kid does something wrong, do you grab a paddle and run out and paddle him? I don't. He's not my kid. But when my kid does something wrong, I grab a paddle and paddle him just because he is my child. My child must behave. God's children, those who are his covenant people, he will chasten for their sins because they are his children. And in order that they not be condemned with the world, You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The people being punished were his covenant people. The person doing the punishment was God. You notice that all the way through? He says, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning egg, and consume the eyes, so on. And verse 17, I will set my face against you. And verse 18, if you will not for all of this hearken unto me, I will punish you seven times more. Over and over, it's God. In verse 28, then will I walk contrary unto you in fury. In fury. The fury of God, that's a terrible thought. 
God's wrath is a theme of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not a very popular theme today. Leon Morris, in a new little book that's out, <clears throat> titled Glory in the Cross, says, The God of Israel was seen as a righteous God, a God concerned that his people also should be righteous. This means that if his people departed from the ways of God, rebelling against his commandments, they could expect the strongest reaction from his side. They call this the wrath of God. The expression is not in high favor in these days, and some theologians go so far as to suggest that we should discard it altogether. But it corresponds to a reality, and it is the biblical phrase. If we are to think of God as a righteous God, we must accept the thought that he reacts against the evil in his people. He does not regard it lightly, but opposes it with all the strength of his holy nature. The wrath of God will be experienced. The purpose of this punishment is brought out over and over. In verse 18, If ye will not yet for all of this hearken unto me. The punishment was sent so they would turn to him. But if they did not, then he would punish even more severely. In verse 23, And if ye will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you, and will punish you yet seven times more for your sins. The purpose of the punishment was to bring repentance. It's sin in love. It's designed that we might be blessed. And he will pursue this until his purpose is accomplished. There will be an increasing intensity in the punishment until we are humbled. Over and over. He sends failure of crops in verse 18 and 19. And it says, Yet, if you will not, I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. There'll be no rain. Iron heavens. The earth will turn hard like brass. And then if you won't respond, he says famine in verse 28. Then will I walk contrary unto you, also in fury. I will even chastise you seven times for your sins, and you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. They did that. Lamentations 4.11. When they were besieged by Babylonia, it got so bad that they ate their sons and their daughters. Read the account of Josephus, the Jewish historian of the besiegement of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which was a further fulfillment of these warnings, which were prophetic in nature. You'll find terrible things of this nature recorded by Josephus. The fear that would come upon them and the flinging of them out to the foreign nations, as you read in verse 33, I will scatter you among the heathen, will draw out a sword after you, your land shall be desolate. And that happened and was only reversed in a sense, ultimately, recently. Again, uh, in verse 36, Upon all them that are left alive of you, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them. Fear. Fear. 
How about you? Any of those things happen to you? Is your heaven iron and your earth brass today? Are you fearful? Has God's walk contrary to you? If he has, he's done it in love. If he has, he's done it that you might hearken and turn. There's a restoration to favor that's held out here. There's something you can do to reverse it. In verse 40, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they have trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary to me, then, he says, I will restore. What must we do to be restored to his favor? First, we must confess our sin. We must confess our rebellion and our trespass against him. That's the first condition of restoration. That's the first aspect of true repentance. Not only must we confess what we've done, but we must confess that it's his hand that has brought these things upon us. Oh, I tell you, people come and they have troubles and they say, but of course I realize that God didn't have anything to do with this. I know my son was killed when a truck hit him, but God didn't have anything to do with that. Well, your Bible doesn't read the way my Bible reads. My Bible says, Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? Shall there be a calamity? I make peace and I create evil, saith the Lord. I, the Lord, do all these things. Nothing happens by accident in a world controlled by God. If something happened to you, acknowledge his hand in it. Look beyond the immediate cause to the ultimate cause, God. He let it happen. He could have prevented it. Ultimately, it came from him, and it was meant for your good. Acknowledge his hand in it. Humble your heart before him. They will acknowledge that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, God wants our heart. That's what he's after. First place in our heart. A heart yielded to him. Not a heart like a non-Christian, an uncircumcised person. A heart that's had the hard places cut away. If you humble your heart, and if you accept your punishment, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, like David accepted his when his child died. You remember? David said, it is good for me that I've been chastened that I've been afflicted, because before I was afflicted, my feet went astray. He accepted the punishment as a blessing. He acknowledged God's hand in it. He humbled himself, and he confessed his iniquity. Read the great prayer of Daniel, as they have been sent into Babylon for 70 years, and now Daniel realizes the 70 years are up. And he calls out to God, and he says, Oh, God, unto you belongs righteousness, and unto us confusion of faces. Our iniquities, we've been punished for them less than we deserve. 
God, everything you've done to us, we deserve ten times over. But God, we are humbled and we are repentant. And unto you belongs mercy. And now, not for our righteousness' sake, but for your mercy's sake, please forgive and restore. And you know it says, while he was yet praying, a messenger arrived from God to say, you're going back to your land. You are forgiven. I will restore. That kind of humility brings restoration to the favor of God. Condition of restoration is real repentance. As a covenant that such restoration is based upon, in verse 42, Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. God's favor is always based on God's covenant of grace. God's covenant, His promise to be your God and to forgive your sins, is based on the death of Jesus Christ. Christ said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. He ratified the covenant. He established the covenant by His death in our place. It's a covenant of grace because God allowed a substitute for you, sinner. God provided a substitute. God substituted Himself. Jesus Christ, the God-man, took our sin upon Himself, paid for it in full, that we might be reconciled to God. The condition, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him as the one who established this covenant, the one who paid in full for our sins. Brethren, are you in this covenant? Are you in a covenant relation with God Almighty? If not, and you go on in sin, God will let you go, probably. Let him alone. He's wedded to his idols. Let him alone. Why did they come to repentance? What brought them back? These arrows that God sped after them to pierce their hearts. Well, why did God pursue in this? Because they were in a covenant relation. In verse 44, And yet for all of that, when they be in a land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, even though they've broken theirs with me. For I am the Lord their God. I will for their sakes remember the covenant. When a sinner who hasn't a covenant relation with God goes on in sin, he'll probably be left to his own. No calamity will come now. It's just treasuring up for later. But when a Christian, one who's in covenant with God's Son, goes on in sin, God won't let that happen before He sends one of these loving chastisements to turn you. And if that's not enough, He'll pursue with another and then another. Thank God! that I'm in a covenant relation. I know this wicked heart of mine. I know how prone I am to turn from God. But 
But I know that I'm going to be in heaven one day because I know God's going to pursue this this one who's in covenant with him and break down my resistance continually. Thank God that he won't let me wander too far. Do you have that kind of assurance? Enter into a covenant relation. Are you keeping his commandments if you are in a covenant relation? Or are you walking contrary to him? Are you abhorring? Are you choosing some and disobeying others? What about it, young person? How about it on the date last night? What about it, Mr. Businessman? How goes it? Junior high, are you keeping his commandments? Or are you preparing yourself for one of these chastisements? And then a heavier, and then a heavier. Are you experiencing today the consequences of not having kept his commandments? Are you here today and in verity you have an iron heaven and a brass earth? Is that your condition? Then won't you hear the rod and him that appointed it today? Won't you turn today in real surrender, real confession of your transgression, real acceptance of the punishment and justifying of him in that punishment, humbling of your heart before him? Won't you meet that condition of restoration to favor? You know, we find pictured here a means of grace. We're told that because many ate who were not walking in his commandments, that they were sick and they were weakly, and some had died at the Corinthian church. And Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. If we would judge ourselves, he says, we would not be judged. Examine yourself today. Are you going against his will in anything? Would you humble your heart right now? Have you really committed your life to Jesus Christ? Are you in a covenant relation with him? If not, will you enter that covenant relation right now? You can do it right now. In your heart, you invite Jesus Christ to be Lord of you, and you trust him as your only Savior on the basis of his death. Pictured for us here. Let us pray. Lord, uh, we would examine ourselves right now in the quietness of this moment and thus prepare to partake. We would think of this covenant relation pictured for us here and the blood that established that covenant and the obligation on our part. Lord, there would be some right now who would want to humble their hearts before Thee, who would want to pray in their heart and say, Lord Jesus, I do. Heart. And I do trust you to forgive my sin right now. Lord, come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would hear these prayers, that you would give us an abounding joy, the joy of restoration right now. In Jesus' name, amen.